This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning and a warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name is Hannah McGill. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to this event with Robin Robertson, a much garlanded, wonderful poet, a very important, influential editor, and now Booker, long-listed writer of, I don't want to say novelist, because this is a long poem, the long take. It's a wonderful book that takes in a huge range of themes, many of which hopefully we'll be able to discuss today. Um, and we'll begin, Robin, with you reading a little from the beginning of the book, and then we're going to talk a little and then have some more readings um, and find out some more about this glorious book, and there'll be <coughs> some time at the end for you guys to ask some questions too. So, Robin Robertson, thank you. And there it was, the swell and glitter of it like a standing wave, the fabled smoking ruin, the new towers rising through the blue, the ranked array of ivory and gold, the glint, the glamour of buried light, as the world turned round it very slowly this autumn morning, all amazed. And it stayed there, watching as they made toward it the truck driver and the young man, under pylons, wires, utility poles, past warehouses, container parks, deserted lots, between the long, oily marshes, landfill sites and swamps, before slipping down under the Hudson and coming up on the other side to find a black wetness of streets trashed and empty and the city gone. That was the entry into Manhattan, as you probably gathered. So we have here a veteran of the Second World War who has returned, well, not returned, come to America, not able to return to his homeland in Nova Scotia. Um, can you tell us something about the background of this story, um, how you began with this project? Well, um, over the past 20 years, I've published quite a lot of books, uh, five collections, three books of translations, book of essays, uh, some <laughs> fesh shrifts. And then I did a selected poems, and while not being quite the grave marker that a collected poems is, <laughs> it did give me pause for thought. And I, I said, well, maybe I should try something different, uh, some, something more capacious. And I'd enjoyed very much writing uh, uh, a poetry sequence in my first book, uh, Camera Obscura, it's called, about this city, about uh, the pioneering photographers, Hill and Adamson. And I thought, well, maybe I could go try something like that. And so I set out to write not, a, not as long a book as this. I thought it would be 40 pages or something. Um, uh, but something that would accommodate many of the interests and fascinations I have that the lyric form could not. Um, and one of those fascinations was the city and, uh, and his a city in history. So um, 
that's where it began and it grew like topsy uh, to what it is now. But it's, it's been a kind of omnium gatherum for everything that, um, that fascinated me, including film, of course. Um, and it's, uh, it allowed me to talk in dialogue and uh, uh, so the narrative form of this book is uh, a propulsive third person narrative which is um, accompanied by contemporary diary entries from the main character and then in a typical noir fashion there are flashbacks uh, flashbacks to the protagonist Walker uh, his life as a as a young man and as a boy in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, and also flashbacks to his immediate past uh, in the Normandy campaigns, uh, D-Day, and the f fighting that followed in Europe. So, there we go. In the sort of search for moral certainty that people often have, the Second World War is often held up as being something where the rights and wrongs were evident and something clear happened. And books like this and the, the film form that you, that you reference, film noir, very much complicate that idea of moral certainty and what happens to Walker is very complicated morally. Can you talk a little bit about what that character represents or what his journey out of the fighting and into a new society or a not-so-new society, what, what that mm. represents for you? Well, he's left a, a rural community very similar to the Western Isles of Scotland, um, built on, on fishing and mining and depopulated and poor. And he's gone to fight uh, with the North Nova Scotia Highlanders in Normandy. And he has seen some terrible things. Uh, he's gone all the way through to the fall of Germany. And he's got various secrets as well, see, crimes that he's committed, quite apart from the crimes he's seen. So he feels... Um, damaged and spoilt in some moral way and he can't return to the uh, the purity of Nova Scotia he wants to disappear and he wants an alternative and cities always provide that alternative that anonymity that refuge that glamour um, excitement um, so he goes to New York, as we just saw, and that didn't satisfy him. So he then moves and he goes to uh, Los Angeles a couple of years after that, and then on to San Francisco, and then back to Los Angeles. And he's looking, he's looking for himself, really. Um, he's looking for a society that he can believe in. He's looking for uh, repair. And he's looking for a camaraderie, the camaraderie he had as a soldier, where every, everything was simple, black and white, the enemy and us, and soldiers were his family. And now he doesn't have that. And he cannot find a home in this deracinated world, which is changing almost as fast and as damagingly as, as the, the country he left in, in Europe destroyed France. 
that idea of not being able to return applies to these cities as well, because in, your, in researching the places that the book <coughs> occupies, you can't visit these cities as they were in 1946. How did you approach the geography and the, the, the placing of Walker? Well, America's, um, America destroys itself on a daily basis. And it's particularly true in Los Angeles, uh, which is a very uncomfortable place to be because there's almost nothing left of, of the old downtown area that I am writing about in this book. Um, <clears throat> there was a huge hill above downtown called Bunker Hill. And if anybody's seen any noir films, it's almost certain that you'll have seen Bunker Hill in that. It was um, it was taken down. It was it was, it was full of a, a small village, really, about 200 acres of housing. But the um, the council uh, wanted to put a central business district there, so they evicted everybody, levelled uh, levelled the houses, and then levelled the hill by nearly 100 feet to build skyscrapers and parking lots. So. As I wanted to inhabit, have Walker inhabit that world, there's no, there are no maps of Bunker Hill to speak of. So I watched about 500 films from the period and pieced together the geography of this lost city. And I drew a map, rather painstakingly, I can tell you. Um, say, oh, that's that corner. That's, that's where that bar is. And, so, and I, the map is has been redrawn by a cartographer and is in this book. It was a way for me to fix the city, because I couldn't walk around it, which I wanted to do. So I, I, I learned it all from film. The, the term film noir is kind of understood in different ways, and maybe the most, the simplest understanding of it is just to do with certain pieces of visual iconography, the very glamorous women, the certain kind of shadowy cinematography, and certain themes that are a little sort of introspective, neurotic, um, and the idea of murder and murder mysteries. Could you maybe give us how you understand that term, since you are maybe one of the leading experts <laughs> now, having watched 500? Yeah. Um, well, film noir is a cliché now, and... Um, most people just think of Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, men with high-waisted trousers and <laughs> trilbies and smoking under streetlights. Um, film noir is, a, in the same way that jazz is a pure American form, film noir is a pure American art form, although it's not American. That's the crucial thing about it. Film, film noir was made, and it only lasted about... 15 years, uh, the film noir cycle. It was made by emigres from Europe, from Nazi Germany, who came over to Hollywood in the late 30s and um, settled. So the directors, people like Fritz Lang, who made Metropolis and M, um, he ended up making The Big Heat with uh, uh, Gloria Graham and Glenn Ford, a noir in Los Angeles. Uh, all the cinematographers, many of the directors, countless actors, were all people on the run from Europe. And they brought their own sensibilities. They brought 
the fear, the paranoia, the trauma of living through Nazi, the beginnings of Nazi Germany. And they imposed that image on the backdrop of Los Angeles, which is a city made for, for that kind of paranoid vision. Because then, with Bunker Hill and some of those landscapes, it suited some of the techniques that these directors and cinematographers were using. And noir, we think of, um, sort of uh, oblique lighting angles, um, the kind of chiaroscuro, uh, low-key lighting, lots of darkness and flashes of white. And the angles are crucial, and so the, the height of Bunker Hill allowed for some wonderful film shots. Uh, but it's a, it's a style, it's a way of seeing rather than a, a genre. Um, and it expresses the paranoia that begins in America and is entrenched in immediate post-war America. And then, as we know now, it just continued from there to the present day. And you make this parallel between Walker's war experiences and the, the film industry, quite literally, in that he becomes tangentially involved with it, he meets some of these directors. So it's not just a metaphor, it's actually that he, he becomes somewhat immersed in the, the world of the people who are actually making these films. Um, how, what was the decision about to make those directors into actual real characters in the book? Um, that happened by accident, but... Uh, Los Angeles, particularly, was a perpetual film set from um, with these B movies being shot, but mostly at night on the cheap. Uh, there were I don't know, dozens being filmed around the, the city every day for a decade. So it's entirely possible that you would encounter the shoots and meet the technicians and the cameramen and even the directors. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was fun to have a couple of directors in this book talking about their vision. Um, and so. There's a line about uh, that one of the characters says about the only American history is on, I sometimes think the only American history is on film, that the way that America conceives of its own past is through fictions or through embroideries of the past via cinema. Can you talk a bit about those parallels between history and fiction that, that get blurred in the book? Um, well, um, America is such a strange country, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it does seem to be often just what the remnants of, of what's left behind of film and TV and, and some books. And it seems to be destroying itself almost as soon as it's made itself. It's, and that's one of the things I wanted to get across in this book, this um, sense of perpetual flux, which is not a relaxing state to be in. And it certainly isn't for Walker, who's just come out of flux in, in, in the war. And he sees in these cities, just particularly towards the end of the book, an exact parallel between the demolition, demolition and destruction and slaughter in Europe 
and what is happening in front of him as they're pulling down Los Angeles and his home that he's come to love. Shall we hear a little bit more? Do you want to pick out some more bits? You can tell us where in the book they occur if you want, or... Um, okay, well, this is... Um, I'll just read a selection of three pieces from, from the middle. Um, I just enjoy the violent bits. Um, <laughs> so this is um, briefly encountering some of that in San Francisco. One time he saw two men bust out of a crib joint, naked, both with knives it looked like, one black, one white, though it was pretty hard to tell as they jabbed and parried under Margie's sputtering bulb and over real quick. One slash opened the black guy's buttock like a plum, then this neat stab to the throat and with it a twisting rope so hot it steamed as it splashed on the cobbles. The blood that ran out of him till he ran out of blood. It could have been any of us, he supposed, weltering in our own muck, all bled out in that back alley 3,000 miles from home. Walker finds a kind of community on um, Skid Row, which is actually the community that's lasted longest in Los Angeles, as far as I can see. Uh, they drove out all the Chinese, the Japanese, the Mexicans, all of them were pushed out for, uh, for richer white folk and for businesses. But Skid Row has remained exactly where it always has been. Um, and Walker recognizes these people not literally, but he feels at home with them. There was the sharp stink of disinfectant, ash barrels on fire, throwing up flakes of light by which he could see them, rows of them, each face creased with age and heavy use and beginning to rub, to open at the seams like an old map. Their eyes closed again, and there was that sweet smell of rot in the shifting shadows, a hand reaching for a bottle, the flare of a struck match disclosing one man's shoe split open like a pod, showing a line of blackened toes. Sitting out by a dumpster in a dance of flies, Velma waved one bandaged hand, tried to get up but couldn't, asked his name and waved again. She looked in her pocketbook, shook it out empty and stared. He asked how she was, and she said her mind had been snowing and it made the past so beautiful now. Said it was hard, though, to see them, all the kind faces she used to know, so many changed or covered over in the fall, the enormous whiteness, so many just drifted away. This idea of, of rot and of things continually 
turning into something other and uglier than they used to be. At one point, he is falling in love with a young girl and he doesn't see her for a while, and when he next sees her, she's radically changed and nothing stays in one place because of this kind of encroaching destruction of things. And then a great irony, which is that, you know, the war was supposed to be a triumph. The, the bad guys were supposed to have been defeated. At one point, someone says, we, we won, but we're living like we lost. You mentioned that this sense of paranoia that sort of set in after the Second World War in America has continued and continued and continued. Can you, can you talk a bit about what you wanted to say about that or what your impressions about that are? Well, it's, America in 1946 was a very in intriguing place. It hadn't wanted to end its splendid isolation, um, but Pearl Harbor rather forced its hand. So America entered the, entered the war and threw itself into it with great enthusiasm. And it actually gave the country a, a real focus, it seems to me, and it became economically incredibly powerful as a result. There were factories springing up everywhere, um, making armaments and tanks and so on. Steel industries were extraordinary. A lot of the Southwest and Los Angeles changed remarkably because of all of that. Um, so they could put um, the depression behind them, and uh, it, they ended the war, um, and they'd won it, of course, um, and it seemed like the most optimistic place in the world, I imagine. Um, but not for the returning soldiers, uh, who were not welcomed back as heroes. They came back to a completely changed environment where the corruption um, in the inner cities had hardened into legislature and um, everything had changed. Um, there was no room for... They, they were all war-damaged and uh, they could barely hold a conversation, let, let, let alone hold down a job. So uh, they drifted into Skid Row and crime and alcoholism. Um, America started to become deeply paranoid because it had opened itself up or, or had been opened up um, into the world. And that fracture seems to have been critical. Almost immediately you had um, people like Senator Joe McCarthy and the HUAC committees in Hollywood. Um, there was this holy fear of the communists, uh, which seemed to galvanize the whole society and was a very useful tool for some powerful people to destroy some weak people. And that uh, atmosphere continued apace. Um, it led directly into, of course, the Cold War, Korea, and then that expansionism into Vietnam, and then Iraq, and Afghanistan, and now we've got Donald Trump. It's a direct narrative line from 1946. And um, I just think it, it's very interesting to, to, to go back to that point, to the tinderbox, and mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. 
and that the, the mistreatment of veterans or the, the shrugging off of those people's experience is something that we still see, and we, we've had it here as well, you know, with the veterans of the Falklands War, veterans of all sorts of wars being sort of shoved to one side, their, their trauma not being recognized, and it always seems like a, a great contradiction in that there's a celebration of military might and a glorification of the idea of of um, colonial battles and victories and the, you know, the, the assertion of might, and yet the people who actually do the dirty work are habitually pushed out of society. And that is it's a very strong thing that comes through in the book that I just find continually confusing, that you don't get the elevation of the people who, you know, without necessarily being massively political about it, just on a human level, it, seems, it always seems to me like a very strange thing in mm -hmm. our societies that we don't treat returning soldiers better. Did, did you, what did you find about that, that? Is there any sense about that that you can grasp? Is it just the fear of damage, the fear of being confronted with consequences? I think people like, like a nice, clean, um, you know, black and white situation. They want heroes mm. to return uh, complete and intact and um, looking just the same as they were before. Mm. They don't want to see people without limbs who are afraid of slamming doors. Um, it doesn't fit the narrative mm. at all, and it certainly happens everywhere. But America, of course, has a stronger idea of, of um, uh, heroes and villains than, right. than we do, because it's got a shorter narrative. And it's only you know, it's 200 and, what, 230 years old, isn't it? Um, and it's still an incredibly primitive country in many respects, although it's uh, the most powerful country in the world. Um, I mean, this, the last lynching of a black man was in 1962. It's not so long ago. Um, it's a very interesting place, very disturbing place, a very attractive place. I love America. I've been going there for 40 years. Um, and I, I like it because of these contradictions for all the, the be beauty and squalor. <laughs> We're often, we often hear that there's a particularly strong link between Scotland and America, partly because of emigres and um, those actual blood connections, but also maybe a, a connection of the imagination about open spaces and, I don't know, and is that something that you relate to? Um. Yes, uh, um, I, I went because of the music initially um, and, and the open spaces um, and the cities too. Um, and going back to, to the film aspect, I, mean, I remember uh, as a kid in Aberdeen watching, watching these B-movies. I didn't know what they were called, um, but thinking, God, this is amazing, these black and white scenes, these shadows. This, and this, I couldn't work out why I, I was so attracted to them. It was only when I moved down to London that I got it. I understood that, that noir was a way of describing the terror of being alone in a, in a new city. Um, so that isn't quite hard to answer your question, but, um, but that's one of the many contradictions that's, that's excited me about the States. And I wanted Walker to be similar to me in some respects, in that he was coming from a northern neighborly 
country, Canada, a rural setting, um, and entering a city. Because I, would, I do remember all the ambivalent feelings I had about coming from the northeast coast and moving down to London and wondering why I'd done this <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> or occasionally wondering why I hadn't done it sooner. <laughs> One of the odd, hard-to-explain things about the, the, the politics or the, the mood of America is how different it is or how different it's perceived to be from Canada. Like, when, whenever there's the big habitual conversation about gun control, for instance, it's pointed out that lots and lots of Canadians have guns, they don't have the same problem with mass shootings, there's a, there's a very different political sensibility, a tendency to be more, more liberal, theoretically. Do, do you have any sense of an explanation for that or an idea of that, having put a Canadian in America in this book? Well, I lived in Canada for a year and I was very conscious there, not before, but when I got there, of the distinct difference between Canada and the United States. And I was living right on the border. So I w it was surprising it was so evident. Um, in fact, I was living in a part of Canada that's south of the United States um, in the Great Lakes. And it was very clear to me, the people I talked to, the sensibilities, the, the whole uh, ethical structure, moral structure, was different. I mean, they're boring sometimes, the Canadians, <laughs> but, um, but you feel their Scottish and Irish beginnings. Uh, they were planted by um, many from the clearances, um, particularly on the East Coast. And, um, it's a very civilized and very beautiful country. Um, it hasn't been <sighs> trammeled in the way that America has mm. been, hasn't been fought over as much. Mm. And speaking of fighting, you, you, you mentioned briefly Donald Trump, and I wonder how, you're, how you see the sort of current culture of tremendous public suspicion of authority and the, the mushrooming of conspiracy theories about each and everything, and a president who calls upon that and maybe uses that to shore up his own power. How, is that a logical conclusion of the kind of rotten paranoia that you've, that you've looked at in this book, do you think? I, th I think it's been, always been there. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's, there are Americans in the audience, and I, I did, please don't misunderstand me, but there is, there is a kind of natural impulse, it seems to me, for Americans to circle the wagons. Um, because going west in, in the early 19th century, claiming the lands west of the Mississippi, um, the, the map of America was completely white on, on the left-hand side. And so then the people who were looking the, for money and land and wealth were constantly running into Native Americans and circling the wagons and shooting the Indians. And it seems to me that America's been circling the wagons and shooting the others as much as possible. That is the natural default, is to, is to um, complain about outs outsiders, even though these people have been, in the case of the Native Americans, they were actually the indigenous people. 
Um, so there is a kind of inbuilt sense of paranoia, um, it seems to me. Not that the Scots don't have it too. <laughs> Just it manifests itself in different ways. Let's hear a little more and then we will take some questions from the audience. Robin, thank you. Right. <clears throat> so this is in Los Angeles. Um, this is Walker wandering around at night as he always does. He couldn't remember the last time he'd been touched. The sign said, palm reading, Chinese medicine, happy massage. There were jars of leaves, grains, twisted roots, the sweet smell of almonds, sesame oil and candles. She wasn't young or pretty, but had a smile at least. She worked his back like a washboard, quick and hard. You're very tired, darling, very tired. Releasing the braided muscles before slowly, slowing, going further down. Excuse me, mister. Turn over, please. You want more, darling? You like hand or hallway? Letting the night loosen around him, he wandered slow past sixth past Coles, past the Greyhound station till he reached the east side, turning off down Maple, Winston, Pedro, Crocker. In each dark corner, the whites of their eyes, every hand stretched out. The nickels and dimes he spilled into their open palms were soundless, thin as water in this heat, evaporating as he walked away. Men sitting round bottles, shifting in their rags, eyes watching the lights of planes drift overhead. Men lined up with their kit, sprawled out on the sidewalk in rows, wearing too many clothes, wearing all their clothes, trying to get some shut-eye before it all starts over, trying all they could. Then a prowl car slewed in to the corner of 4th and Los Angeles, revolving lights like some carousel, and two cops running, yelling, Stop! Police! at this guy who's already through third and halfway down the block to St. Vibiana's. He pulls up, steps away from the dark, spreading his hands, taking the shape of a standing star. He might have been shouting, but he was too far off to make any sense. Then suddenly he reaches for his top pocket and seems to pull out a red handkerchief, steps backwards, faltering, then rips another one right out of his face. It was only then that Walker heard them, the sound of the shots. After that, he kept going north, past the beacon of hope, the floodlit stone towering above over all the human debris, poor as dust, all these winos, conmen, crooks and cops, pimps and streetwalkers, the raised hand of the law, the whited sepulchre of City Hall. And on to Alameda and Chinatown, till he found the path that climbed to the stone quarry hills, up through fields and houses of the new Pueblo to the high ravines. And he stood there, far over City Hall, over the lights of Los Angeles, 
as if the whole sky and all the stars had fallen, displayed, spread out below in a flickering maze, this bed of moving embers. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question for Robin, please stick your hand up. Oh, we've got a mic in the audience, so wait till you get the mic. Anybody? Yeah. Start with the lady down here, please. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for that very interesting talk. Um, Robin, I wondered, now that you've ventured into um, this long form that everyone's very nervous about calling either a novel or, <laughs> or poetry, if it's a place that you'd like to stay, if you think you'll be spending more time in it. Well, that depends. Um, well, I didn't mean to do this in the first place, so it wasn't as if it were a conscious decision. Um, and it did take an awful lot out of me. Um, uh, as David Jones says at the, in the preface to the Anathemata, I made a heap of all I could find. <laughs> and I sort of have. Um, and it's completely emptied me out, and I, I have no sense of what I'll do next. Um, and I'm going to the Antipodes on Wednesday to see if that'll provide some solution to that problem. <laughs> Robin, I, I too grew up watching B-movies in uh, northeast of Scotland. But alongside the B-movies, the noir movies, with their moral ambiguity, there was another genre, which were westerns, with moral certainty at its core. Would you like to talk about the interplay between that side of America? And, uh, well, I never believed westerns <laughs> uh, because of that uh, very clear um, ethical black and white. Um, it didn't seem to me, even at the age of whatever I was, I'm a teenager, it didn't seem to me a reality at all. It seemed like a an American construct, or maybe not an American construct, but just a sort of comic book construct of simplification. And as I said before, I don't know why I was attracted to the um, what I discovered to be called film noir, um, but it was partly that, that it was ambiguous and, um, and strange, but strangely compelling and believable as a result. Uh, no, I never like cowboy films. Sorry. <laughs> what was the driving force behind the book? Was it to set up with the aim of writing a book about film noir or a stranger in a foreign land or an American novel or piece of work? Uh, it, was, it was all of those. Um, but it was... And it was this sense of wanting to do something different. But... I suppose tracking back to that feeling as I had as a um, as a very young man moving from up north down to a city and and all those very complex emotions that um, that you have at that age anyway, but particularly when you move to a, such an alien environment. And I could never find a place for them in, in, the, in the poetry, the short form poetry. But cities have f always fascinated me um, for all the reasons that I mentioned. And so it needed a larger form to accommodate them. And I didn't want to write about London because I'm too familiar with it. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to 
write it about American cities, but also <clears throat> historical American cities, and not present day, because that's it's more interesting to me. And it, as I dis discovered, and a lot of this book was a, an act of discovery, that this period was so extraordinary, the best jazz, the best films, um, and, but it was on the cusp of catastrophe. So it seemed, it just ran and ran. I just I put it down and realized how much I'd written. Anyone <laughs> else? Oh, right down here. Thank you. This may be a non-question. Um, I've not set eyes on your book until now, today. Um, but I had read a, a review uh, which led, led me to what is correct, uh, I guess, the, uh, uh, the, the poetic nature of the writing. And um, I caught a glimpse of, of a page that you were turning, and it did appear as though it was in set out in free verse. Um, I don't know whether all of it is, is like that. Perhaps the diary entries are not, I don't know. Um, it, 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 that's true. It's not, it's not written like a novel uh, in the sense of uh, the, 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 the lines going over, going over and uh, being ordinary writing. And if, if, if that's the case, is the, 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 where you, you had a self-conscious view that it had to be in lines like free verse as opposed to a traditional novel in, in paragraphs? Well, I'm a, I'm a poet, not a, not a novelist. Um, and the, the main narrative, the propulsive narrative, is um, in free verse um, with broken lines. That's how I write. Um, it also, it's a very useful directive to the reader to know when to pause and allows them to understand the rhythms that I was after in the first place. Um, it's a narrative, so it can be read as a, as a conventional narrative with, uh, with full line length. But um, I, 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 as I say, I really wasn't conscious of what I was doing. There is prose, if you like to call it prose, um, in it. The, Flashbacks are all in italic in um, in conventional prose, but it's heightened prose. It could easily be broken up and written as poetry. I don't really see a necessary distinction sometimes between the two forms. Um, some so-called prose is, as far as I'm concerned, highly poetic. Um, uh, but we live with these categories and we are pigeonholed accordingly. And I to my great delight, seemed to jump out of one pigeonhole and <laughs> into another uh, very briefly. Did you meet any resistance to writing it like that? Was there any sense that it would confuse people or put them off? Well, I haven't yet. Um, <laughs> um, I'm used to, to putting people off. I mean, that's what, <laughs> what, that's what poetry is for, <laughs> really, people, to make people uncomfortable. Um, the few that actually encounter it. Um, one of the delights being um, on this long list is that more people are being made to feel more uncomfortable. <laughs> Anybody else have a question? Yeah. I was curious what the reception to the book's been in America. 
and also this kind of secondary question about whether um, it's almost necessary to be an outsider to to write truthfully about our culture. Um, well, the book the book is going to be published in the states. Um, by Knopf in January, so I don't really know um, what the reaction is, um, but the Los Angeles review was kind. Um, it's a, it's worrying because I'm I'm coming to them, telling them stories about themselves, and I wouldn't like it if <laughs> if it was reversed. If somebody was coming to Aberdeen and, and saying, "Well, you are awful, you lot." <laughs> um, so, what was the second part? That Do you need to be an outsider to see a culture? <sighs> yes, I think, I think you have to be an outsider to be an artist, actually, um, if one can call oneself an artist. Um, I think you have to s stand apart to get any kind of perspective. Um, I think that's true. that's true for not just art, but for all kinds of commentary. Else? Robin, you've touched upon music as being a great big influence. And it was lovely to hear the music as we came in uh, to this event. Can you say a little bit more about your relationship to jazz and other music and what sort of influence it's had on your work? Um, jazz hasn't had much influence on my work, but I, I do love a particular period of, of jazz. And any jazz enthusiast will know that this is a war zone, um, <laughs> and so I'm not going to go too far into it, but uh, I'm fond of the pre-bebop, um, so Ben Webster, Coleman Hawkins, Art Tatum, that sort of uh, melancholy blues ballad type uh, of thing, which you'll have heard as you came in and you'll hear as we walk out. Um, it, is, it, is, it feels to me like the soundtrack for this book. Um, Music, well, music's very important. All kinds of music is important to me, but I don't think it has any actual, apart from uh, Scottish folk music, which does have some bearing on the work at times. Um, it's just what I listen to when I'm not working. So you don't have music playing while you're writing? I don't, I have like absolute silence um, and solitude, preferably in a tower. <laughs> with a last question. Oh, Phil at the back, actually. This is our saxophonist. Phil yeah, thank you, by the way, Phil, for <laughs> the music. Thank you. Pleasure, Robin. Um, I really enjoyed listening to you talk. Um, there was a moment when you described piecing together a non-existent city in your head through watching lots of movies and then drawing a map, and this idea of something in your head reproducing something in external reality. And you said a comment about America's always understood itself from its film or its fiction. I mean, the era of fake news. So I'm interested in this idea of truth. And do you feel a responsibility as someone who's essentially writing a work of fiction, uh, talking in an honest and authentic way about something to do with reality? Or, and is there anything, do we have anything else? And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that in the context of the time we're living now. I can only talk really about um, the geographical aspect of this, which is always, it's always important to me in, in writing to, 
to fully know what I'm writing about, uh, the terrain of what I'm writing. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to come out in the finished article, but I have to, I have to walk it. I have to uh, move through a landscape and, and understand it in my own terms, which, as I said, was impossible for in Los Angeles because it, the places I wanted to talk about simply don't exist largely anymore. Um, but walking is, is a part of the creative process for me anyway. It's part of the, the thinking through of an idea and develop, developing that idea into something coherent. Um, so it was hard to do. In, it, was, it was fine in New York and San Francisco where, where most of the streets and many of the buildings still exist. But Los Angeles, I just sort of had to make up from watching the films and piecing it together, which actually gave me a closer scrutiny, um, a better understanding perhaps of, of, of that period than, than if, it, if those buildings had been there and just renovated and repaired and so on. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a useful snapshot at that of, of a time of incredible flux. And that gives us an opportunity to say thank you so much, Phil Bancroft, for the wonderful music that played us in and will play us out again. We have requested that Phil follow us around for the rest of the day, <laughs> <laughs> giving us atmosphere. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for coming. Thank you for your great questions. Please do read this book. It is tremendous. Um, Robin will be doing a signing right now um, in the signing tent by the cafe. Um, so please come along and get your book signed. Um, Robin, thank you so very much for talking about the book and reading to us. Best of luck with it and with escaping to Australia as well. Um, Robin Robertson, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Hannah. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.